The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. The rotator cuff is a group of four muscles that come together as tendons, which help us lift and rotate our arms. So let's take a minute to think about all the things we couldn't do in our day if we were to injure or tear our rotator cuff, such as drive a car, put on a seatbelt, get dressed, lift and pick up our children, or hang out the washing. Rotator cuff injuries are extremely common, particularly in people that enjoy sports such as baseball, tennis, swimming, or who work in jobs like painting, plastering, cleaning, and diesel mechanics. So today on MediTalk, we speak with orthopaedic surgeon, Dr. David Colvin, about rotator cuff injuries and repairs. Dr. David Colvin is an orthopaedic surgeon who specializes in knee and shoulder surgery at St. John of God Hospital in Subiaco. So what is the rotator cuff and what is its main function? That's actually quite a challenging question, uh, even for a shoulder surgeon to sort of put the answer into into sort of uh, something clear and straight and understandable. I remember being a, a medical student and uh, anatomy, uh, you know, a bit of a struggle for everybody. Mm. But the, the concept of the rotator cuff was really quite alien, and, and it's one of the one of the hardest things in my in the anatomy course, I think, mm. to actually finally click for me, mm. because it's a group of tendons around the shoulder, and it's a structure that doesn't occur anywhere else in the body. We have uh, the shoulder is a, a ball; it sits in a socket, and the shoulder joint probably has a greater range of movement than any other joint in your shoulder. And so it's got to have a unique structure. Uh, it's not a contained ball in a socket like our hip is, where the, where the socket holds the ball in place. This is a ball that's floating around on a tiny little socket. We tell people it's a bit like a golf ball on a tee, and it doesn't take much to knock the golf ball off the tee. And the same with the shoulder. Your shoulder can be dislocated with, with greater ease than you could dislocate, say, a joint like your hip. Uh, and so in order for that ball to move in the socket and to have this incredible range of motion so that we can put our hand in space in all different positions, uh, we have to have a unique mechanism to, to stabilise it and to motivate it and make it work. So the shoulder, first of all, has a capsule holding the ball in the socket and then outside the capsule is a group of tendons. There's, there's four tendons, uh, three main ones, uh, that, that come uh, around that capsule and uh, merge together. So that's what, why it's called a cuff. These three tendons that uh, the coming together and then form one structure, which is a cuff over the top and the front and the back of, the, of that ball as it sits in the socket. Now those three tendons come from muscles that sit around the shoulder blade. So your shoulder blade has an underneath surface with the subscapularis muscle, it has a, a spine at the back and above that it has a supraspinatus muscle and below that the infraspinatus. So these are all the, the sort of muscle names that you might read about if, you, mm. if you're Googling <laughs> rotator cuff. But th those th three muscles form tendons. So the muscle is the red bit, if you think of your lamb shank, say, and the tendon is the white bit, the strong bit, but doesn't, that it's white because it doesn't have much blood supply. It's, it's more a rope or pulley. And so those three tendons come together and merge into this sheet over the top and front and back of the, the shoulder socket. They actually 
work as a, a servo mechanism if you're mechanically minded. So the, the tendon at the top helps lift the, lift the shoulder up. The tendon at the front helps turn the shoulder in as it contracts. The tendon at the back helps turn the shoulder out. So that gives you your basic movements. Now they're not strong, particularly strong. They are assisted by this big deltoid muscle that sits over the top and the deltoid does the hard work. But in, in order to get things, get things going, to kick off those movements, you need these these little muscles sort of holding the ball in the socket, providing that little lever arm, otherwise the ball would just sort of slop out of the socket. So so is it in simple tasks that I suppose when we're looking at the second part of the question, which is the function, is it things like when you brush your teeth, you're using your rotator cuff, or is it things that when you're putting on your clothes, you're putting on a T-shirt? All of those things. So if you've got a rotator cuff injury, you will struggle with what we call ADLs, activities of daily living, and, and they're the things that bring people along to see me. Is I, You know, it hurts when I, I can't get my hand behind my head to brush my hair. Women, I can't put a bra on. It's a really disabling thing in day-to-day living can't go to, uh, typically to the toilet, all of those things, everything that you do with your hand requires a stable shoulder, requires your shoulder to position your arm and requires those muscles to hold that, that ball in the socket and to, and to move that ball around the socket and to initiate shoulder movement. And this is why it's, you know, as you said, I think we take those little tendons for granted because I think we must think, oh, it's our muscles that are doing the majority of the work, but without the tendons, they couldn't do these movements. Yes, and I, I spend a lot of time saying to people, it's, it's tendons in our body that often let us down or are subject to wear and tear before other parts of your body. And, and, um, and, and again, it's something I sort of spend a lot of time thinking about and why is that? And as, as I alluded before, tendons are white because they don't have a, much of a blood supply and it's blood that heals things. So muscles are red, they've got lots of blood, bringing in oxygen for the muscle to work. But if you damage a muscle, if you tear a muscle, it's got all this great blood supply to heal itself as well. Whereas tendons, they don't have a great blood supply and they t- they're subject to wear and tear, they're subject to high load. And, and uh, often as we uh, uh, sort of get a bit older, it's our tendons that, that let us down in terms of our musculoskeletal system before anything else. So we see Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, patellar tendonitis, golfer's elbow, tennis elbow, and rotator cuff uh, problems. And these are all inherently tendon problems. And then who are generally suffering rotator cuff injuries? Who are you seeing most walk through the door with this injury? So if you're over the age of perhaps 30 or 40 and you've got shoulder pain, it is probably, and, and you haven't had an injury, so not a traumatic shoulder pain or only had a minor injury perhaps, then it's probably coming from your rotator cuff until proven otherwise. Shoulder arthritis is actually not nearly as common as we see it in the hip and knee, but rotator cuff problems are very, uh, very uh, common in the community. And, and we have a sort of a basic al- algorithm that says that uh, in your 40s, you start to get tendon rubbing, so you get tendonitis, uh, which is also associated with, with bursitis. So that's a more common term that a lot of people might have heard. And it's also called impingement, which is when you lift your arm up, those rotator cuff tendons are impinging against the, the bone of your shoulder blade, the, the acromion bone. So 
you might have heard any of those terms used and, they, and they're almost interchangeable. Rotator cuff tendonitis, subacromial bursitis is probably the commoner term, or impingement, which is probably the most accurate term, the tendon is rubbing. And uh, we say that you get tendon rubbing in your 40s. If that process continues, you might get partial tearing in your 50s. And then into your 60s, you might get complete tendon tearing. Now, the, 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 it is a, often an oversimplified sort of explanation that it's a tendon rubbing process and sometimes it's associated with bone spurring that, that develops with age uh, and tendon rubbing is certainly uh, a part of the process but it all, is also uh, an age-related wear and tear, what we call a degenerative condition, which is not a, a great of, name, is a, it? A bit of a depressing word. <laughs> yes. But it, it is. It, there are some things happening within the tendon. As I said, it's losing its blood supply. It's aging. It's not repairing itself as well. And so there are there are. There's this simplified explanation: the tendon's rubbing on the bone or rubbing on a spur. Yes, that's part of it. But there is also an underlying tendon degeneration. And so what are some of the, apart from ageing, what are some of the other causes that would cause us to get rotator cuff injuries? Uh, so certainly if you've had a, so if you've had an injury, you can tear your rotator cuff at a young age from injury. And the classic one is a shoulder dislocation. Um, not so much in the younger patients, but again, if you're over 30 or 40 and you have a shoulder dislocation, uh, we're often not so worried about the dislocation and can pop that back in, in the emergency department or on the sports field. But it can be a, uh, it is a risk factor for tendon tearing, and if you've had a dislocation uh, in that age group or older, you should definitely have an ultrasound or MRI scan or some form of investigation to make sure that you haven't torn your rotator cuff, uh, because that's a classic sort of warning sign. Uh, and then there's there's um, a, a more chronic sort of process which we see with people who have uh, either jobs or sports that re involve repetitive overhead activities. Mm. Uh, swimming's a good one for precipitating shoulder tendonitis, and and unfortunately uh, probably contributed to the demise of some many aspiring <laughs> uh, athletes. Uh, uh, we say that you know to be an elite athlete, you've got to have the the drive, you've got to have the natural ability and you've got to be gifted with a body that can survive the... Tendons of steel. Yeah, well, they <laughs> say the hundred, uh, the 10,000 hours of practice or whatever yeah. it takes to be elite, you know. So uh, so uh, we see it in, in people who have sporting uh, things with repetitive overhead activities, but we also see it in occupational sense quite a lot if you've got a job that requires repetitive overhead work or repetitive reaching, ceiling fixes, plasterers, uh, tilers, uh, those people get rotator cuff tears, you know, sooner than, than others. And and it's a really big thing for them because it's potentially career-ending, you know, so that's uh, even with successful treatment, it's hard to go back to a heavy-duty overhead diesel mechanic job mm. if you've had major shoulder reconstruction. And then how common is it? Is it is it one of those most common injuries that you would see in your profession? I would say rotator cuff pathology is extremely common. And, in, and increasing uh, because uh, we're seeing an ageing population. We're all living a lot longer uh, and uh, I guess we're seeing more of this sort of uh, wear and tear where the, the mind is strong and the body is weak perhaps. And uh, uh, I, you know, I'm seeing an, in, a lot of people who are still very, very healthy into their 60s, 70s, 80s and expecting to, to still play social tennis and things like that. Tennis is a really good one where, where you know, often that overhead serve can be really difficult if you've got rotator cuff problems. Uh, and uh, so we're finding that, that, you know, that people are seeking out treatment for shoulder problems, 
perhaps that maybe in the past weren't. And what are some of the common symptoms that, you know, obviously you'll have a game of tennis or perhaps a plaster has done a number of 12-hour days or something and just they go, oh, it's a bit achy. But when do they think, oh, this is not, I need to not actually right, go yeah, and yeah. see someone? The, the thing that brings most people to my office, I suppose, the crunch point is pain at night and loss of sleep. Uh, and for some reason it's a particularly big issue with shoulder things. You just can't get comfortable at night or you. what happens is you always sleep on your right side and you try to sleep on your left side, but the minute you go to sleep, you roll onto your right side and you're sore and you wake up. And uh, and that's a, and once you start losing sleep, uh, it's, it's not just uh, you that wants to come and see the doctor, but your husband and wife or husband and wife will drag you along going, you know, here he is. I can't put up with him anymore. <laughs> I'm not taking him home until you fixed him. So yeah. Thing. And then what if you've damaged it and then you think, oh, you know, I haven't had time to get the referral to see my specialist and you continue to use it. Are you actually furthering that damage and getting to a point where sometimes you say cases and you think, oh, we should come in a year ago? <laughs> yes. Uh, it, there is, um, I suppose, an issue with tendon tears in that once, if a tendon tears completely and it's no, no longer attached to the bone, and, and, and it's important to understand that tearing occurs where the tendon attached to the bone. So that's always how it happens. In rotator cuff tearings, the tendon comes away from the bone, and it's usually that top tendon, the supraspinatus, which is probably more important than the others and subject to the most load. And, and once the tendon is no longer attached, the muscle is not working, the muscle is shrinking away, the tendon is retracting, and uh, the repairability or the success from surgery does potentially reduce. We can only stretch a tendon up so far. If the muscle is already wasted away, it's a little walnut of hard scar tissue. Even if you can attach it, it's not going to work again. Or if you can, sometimes we can attach it, but it's got no blood supply and it doesn't heal and doesn't repair. Now, if you, if you cut your Achilles tendon, say, at your heel, that tendon will retract a long way quickly and that has to be treated, uh, you know, within weeks or months or it becomes very difficult. Shoulder tendon tear is not necessarily like that. It can be uh, if you have an injury, like dislocate your shoulder and you often tear, tear the tendons extensively and that can be a real, uh, you know, semi-urgent thing to fix. But because they are in this sort of uh, cuff where they're sort of attached to one another, the, they don't necessarily spring back a long way. And you might start with a, uh, you know, as I said, rubbing in your 40s and partial tearing in your 50s and then full thickness tear that's, you know, one, one centimetre and then two, a year later it's two centimetres and three centimetres or something like that. So it's not always a, an urgent decision and, and often there is an opportunity for us to treat things without surgery you know, over perhaps an extended period of time and, and monitor, but we we don't want to get to a, a point where we've ignored something for years and it's become unfixable, uh, and that might occur when it's, you know, a two-centimetre tear or something like that maybe. Um, uh, but more importantly, and, and what we've got now is MRI scans, which are so useful because we can look at the muscle, not just the tear, but we, the MRI scan can tell us the size of the tear, but what the MRI can tell us, which ultrasound can't and x-rays can't, is what's happening with that muscle. Is it shrinking down? Is it wasting away? Is it turning to sort of scarred up tissue? And, and then I can, and we can say, well, look, the muscle's healthy. The tear's not too big. It hasn't changed much in the last year. If you're coping all right, we'll keep going with the physio strengthening program, stretch and strengthen program, and 
maybe we'll play tennis once or twice a week, not five times a week, and take some anti-inflammatories and Panadol and things like that. Uh, but if we, but but perhaps you know we might see that that tear's getting bigger over time. We might make our decision, you know, gradually uh, rather than rather than urgently. And do the t- other tendons try and compensate? So when one tendon's uh, had a tear. Do other tendons come in well, and rally around and help? Yes. So the the a big part of the the rehab uh, uh, and it, uh, is is strengthening up your deltoid. So that as I said, that you've got this big deltoid muscle that that can take over completely and can do a lot of the work. Uh, and and uh, then we might find that someone's got a, a big tear, but but no pain, and it's and, and it's quite uh, difficult to predict. Some people will have, have substantial tears and not much pain, and are functioning very well on their on their deltoid function. And in fact, the statistics say that you know if we looked at uh, the, n- the normal population in their 60s and did an ultrasound, we might find 10 or 15 percent have, have rotated cuff tears they don't know about, and into the 70s we might find 25 percent of people have rotated cuff tears that they don't know about. So it, it's, there's not a simple equation, rotator cuff tear equals surgery, not by any means. Even sort of before the scans, mm. I, I think I fall back on, uh, I think, some really basic orthopedic tenets, which are probably applied to all of medicine, but orthopedics in particular, we're, we're treating pain and function. So people come to me and say, it hurts, I wake, I wake up at night, I, I've had this for a month, I can't go on like this. Okay, that's a reason to perhaps... perhaps move surgery up the list of options or they come along and say look I've been playing penance tennis all my life it's everything to me the club is my social mm. sport is our so is often our uh, social uh, world as well as our physical world and they can't play tennis and it's uh, that's a that's a reason perhaps to to push the treatment down a more aggressive pathway perhaps but if someone comes along and they've got a rotator cuff tear and uh, you know, it's it's a, perhaps a smallish tear or a partial tear and it's not bothering them particularly much and we can modify the activities, steer them away from overhead activities or heavy, repetitive overhead activities, even modify their workplace sometimes and change their workstation and things like that uh, and encourage them to take, you know, regular Panadol, occasional anti-inflammatories, sometimes cortisone injections. There's some newer injections like... PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma. Yeah, what do you think of that? Uh, look, anything new that that uh, that helps is uh, that that is safe is worth investigating. PRP certainly been around for a long time, so we know it's safe. PRP is your own blood uh, taken in the in the office. It's spun down to remove the red cells, and you're left with uh, platelet-rich plasma. And your plasma has all those things that sort of keep your body in tip-top condition, it's got growth hormones, it's got anti-inflammatory hormones, and the theory is that if we inject those things in high concentration around an injured area, that that will promote healing of that injury. Uh, It's had a huge increase in interest in in recent years and in usage. We're still sort of defining where it might work. Um, there's some figures for knee injections that show that two out of three people approximately might get six to 12 months of improvement. Um, I actually see it uh, possibly more applicable to things like tendon injuries. Uh, you know, the, the joint's healing capacity, the joint surface healing capacity is a bit more limited, but in the shoulder where we're talking about tendons, injecting, uh, you know, growth-promoting and uh, in anti-inflammatory type uh, substance that's natural, that's yours, it's come from your body, 
may may well promote, uh, if not maybe tendon healing, but at least some sort of reduced inflammatory response and and stabilisation of the process. And uh, uh, and certainly in in practice, we are seeing that. But I guess the big data studies maybe aren't aren't quite there yet. And I have to say, and I've said it to patients before, rotator cuff repair surgery, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Oh, really? (laughs) It is a tough road and it's hard to prepare people for it. And I actually encourage people to go out and ask around amongst their friends because it's such a common problem. You will find someone who's had it done. Mostly they'll tell you horror stories. They'll tell you that it was the worst thing that ever happened to them. It was the most, you know, miserable you know, three months of their life. And, and, you know, it is generally speaking, it's six weeks in a sling. You can't drive for six weeks. It's hard to get comfortable. It's hard to sleep. You need narcotic painkillers at the start of it. Um, then it's another six weeks where you're restricted in your lifting capacity. Uh, and full recovery, 12 to 18 months to see that final result. And that final result's often not 100%. It's not, you know, it's 90, 95% in good cases. Uh, and and through all that uh, that uh, misery, we're cracking the whip going, you've got to get it moving. <laughs> oh, we hope we're getting the physio to do that. We do the good cop, bad cop routine. Yeah. The physio's cracking the whip over and, 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 and the people who, I guess, if you talk to people, you know, I talk to people who've had good results, they say, well, I did the rehab, I worked hard, you know. And then and then I, and I'll say, oh, but so and so down at the bowls club, I know she wasn't doing anything, and now she's got a really stiff shoulder. And often the best advice comes from somebody in the community that you know that's had it done because yeah. the uh, you know it is very dependent on that rehab, and and so you've got to get really good pain relief. And, and I guess that's that's a big part of my job with this operation. If you have surgery, is is getting good management of that post-operative pain, so you can do your rehab and a clear understanding of what rehab you've got to do. Uh, to the extent that I've, I've got my own sort of protocols on my website that people can refer to, physios can refer to, and, and you know, hopefully everybody knows what they should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> and what about healing? Can can the rotator cuff heal on its own? Because it's not getting blood supply, yeah, is so it actually possible? That's a, a, a very good question. And the short answer really is no. We don't generally see rotator cuff tears healing. In the full thickness tears, the tendon can't jump across that gap. So it's pull off the bone. There's a one centimetre gap maybe, and, and there's fluid in that gap. That's the fluid from the shoulder joint. So there's no... You know, I said we're carpenters, orthopods, mm. and there's no structural way for that tendon to get across that gap and heal itself. Partial tears, we'll see. The, I'll see the occasional scan where they might say that there's been some resolution in the in the partial tear in, on the scan appearance. That's that's probably not substantial. It's probably just uh, you know variation between the two scans, perhaps. Um, but you can have a partial tear that's pain free. Or you can have a partial tear that's painful for a while but settles down with conservative treatment, with non-operative treatment, so physio injections or whatever, and then maybe maybe stable and not painful for a long period of time. And again, we might do an MRI scan. Even if people are pain-free, I might suggest that they come back for another scan in 12 months and we're looking to see that that, that tear hasn't progressed. So you're constantly sort of monitoring. Well, I like to. Yeah. I, I think if we decide to go down a non-operative pathway, I, I generally would like to see a follow-up scan, ultrasound or MRI scan, maybe 12 months later, uh, just so we don't miss the boat if there's a problem, you know. I think that's really good that we clarify for people that it doesn't, it's not an injury that heals on its own because I think some people go, oh, let let it just get it better 
by itself. And I think, mm. yeah, there's only but, so much the human body can do. But the point is, if you're in your 70s and maybe you've got some other medical issues and uh, uh, and you've got a tear but but it settles, it becomes pain-free, then you don't have to have surgery on yeah. that, you know. It's, um, I guess the corollary is, so what happens if we miss a boat? What if we have a tendon tear, you know, elect to treat it some, uh, non-operatively and occasionally a uh, patient will go away and, you know, the... The, the message when they get home was, oh, yeah, Doc said I'm fine, <laughs> no worries. And we don't see them for five years or ten years and they come back. And I um, uh, also saw a patient this week who uh, had seen a doctor 20 years ago with a tendon tear on their ultrasound and 20 years ago the doctor said, oh, well, you know, she'll be right. <laughs> you know, maybe, it was a, maybe it wasn't a specialist, I don't know. But then 20 years later they've got an unfixable tear. Now, un, I should say irreparable. Now, the worst case scenario in that situation is is that we go to a shoulder replacement instead. So there are options, but they're just bigger options and perhaps not as functional and not as good as as repairing your own tendon. Say I'm a plasterer, I've decided, well, for my livelihood, I have to do something. I have to have rotator cuff surgery. What are you actually doing to... To us, well, nearly always it's a tear of the supraspinatus, which is a tendon at the top, and uh, most times there's some degree of bone spurring or bone rubbing process uh, going on. So the the surgery uh, involves clearing away the scar tissue and bursitis first of all, and we do that with keyhole or arthroscopic surgery, and always, pretty much always, we shave some of the bone away. So the bone above the tendons, the acromion bone. Uh, we want to take a bit of that away and create more space for the repair and stop any rubbing process that might be going on. Now, and there's there's some uh, literature and studies and suggestion that that even if you've got if if you've got a tear and you just do that, that can be enough to help. Okay. Does that stop um, the inflammation then? Because you're you're stopping the rubbing. Uh, yeah, well, you, you, you're stopping that mechanical part of it. As I said, there's a, you know, running in the background, there's this wear and tear degenerative part of it as well. Uh, but, but yes, stopping that, that mechanical rubbing and taking away this chronically inflamed bursal tissue uh, can certainly help. But then, if it's all possible, we're hoping then to go on and repair the tendon, and that involves getting the tendon and stitching it back onto the bone. And this is where the carpentry bit comes in because we have these great little miniature wall plugs, basically. They're little plastic or metal screws that we tap into the, to the bone uh, and they have stitches on them and the stitches go through the tendon. We tie the tendon down to bone and there's, uh, you know, we often use, use cerebral stitches um, and that part of it, the stitching part of it, can be done either with keyhole surgery or with a little cut. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of talk about that, whether you have an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair or a mini open rotator cuff repair. Um, in in actual reality, there's uh, uh, there's no difference in the recovery timeline. So the recovery is dictated by the tendon growing onto the bone. If we're being brutally uh, uh, honest about it, the keyhole surgery might be. Uh, four little cuts a centimetre and a half long and uh, to do it with an open surgery you've got one cut that's you know four or five centimetres long. And, and then how long are you in in hospital for? 
So uh, there's a big push worldwide, I suppose, to do uh, to reduce stay in hospital, uh, but that's uh, I guess a financial imperative, and that's mm. not what we're thinking about as treating no. doctors. We're, uh, so uh, you know, in, uh, there are places where you can have that done as day surgery in America. Um, most people stay one night. I actually book all my patients in for two nights uh, for pain relief. I want people to be sorted with their pain and understand their exercises before they leave hospital so that I know they're going to hit the ground running with their rehab program. And then how quickly are, are you getting them into rehab? So th- they will see the physio the day after surgery, uh, wow. if pain permits, yep. And I try to get them to read my rehab program before surgery so that they've got a good idea about um, uh, what what exercises they'll be doing and they're sort of a little bit primed up. If they've got a physio, they'll have already uh, perhaps been run through some of the, the basic rotator cuff exercises. And what's some info that sometimes they'll, they'll be shocked to hear? You know, they'll come and see you and they'll... How think- long it takes to get better. Uh, I use the analogy of the, uh, the footy player as a knee reconstruction because those footy players are out of football for 12 months uh, and this is a shoulder reconstruction and you've got to expect it's a 12-month recovery. Uh, and then I say, and the footy players, they've got nothing else to do except rehab and they've got a lot of resources and it's all about the recovery. And, uh, you know, uh, if, if it takes them 12 months uh, at age 21, then it's going to take take uh, take us 12 months at least, you know. So how long before you could start work? So if they've taken time off work, mm. realistically, generally, because we can only speak generally, what would people need to take off work before mm. they could get back into uh, what they weren't doing normally. This is, again, this is a part of the conversation, the preoperative conversation where I'll feel terrible telling people yeah. about it because if someone said to me I have to have a rotator cuff repair, I think I'd need it six months, 12 months to plan for it just to, to fit it around around work. So uh, it's because in that first six weeks you're wearing a sling and you can't drive, uh, so you're very restricted in what you can do. If you run a business, you can be there, sort of supervising and directing. But if, but for most people, it's uh, that's, you know, there's there's nothing you can do in those first six weeks, generally speaking. Um, then depends on right arm or left arm, or dominant arm or non-dominant arm. So, you know, you can return. Uh, so at six weeks, you're sort of lifting a kilo down low, building up to a couple of kilos. You can carry a shopping bag, perhaps, but you're not supposed to be stressing that tendon repair too much. Um, we, we say in the first six weeks, your movements, uh, and this is a rehab thing, are passive movements, which is you're not using the muscle to move your arm. The arm is being moved by, uh, uh, by gravity or uh, uh, by put, resting it on an external table or something and moving your body so you can't, you can't pull on that tendon repair. The, and, and, the, and a lot of people, I guess, do worry about the tendon, re- tendon tearing in that recovery period. That can be a problem in itself because if you're if you're terrified about it tearing, you won't do enough and you'll get a frozen shoulder. <laughs> but we give you exercises that are very very safe and and we encourage you to do those exercises regularly. But uh, you know those those six first six weeks of movements are passive. There's not no muscle contraction. The second six weeks are what's called active assisted exercise, which means that you're using a bit of your own power, but it's but it's assisted. So we have you using a pulley to lift your arm or a broomstick to lift your arm. Uh, so you're not even technically supposed to be lifting your arm under its own steam, even in that period, or you're phasing it in at least, you know. And it's really three months from surgery before you're starting to do, you know, some active strength-building exercises with that, that arm. Uh, so I, I tell people, you know, it's three months to do 
uh, light lifting, six months to do moderate lifting, 12 months to do heavy lifting, just as a sort of ballpark, you know. I, I think the, by far and away the great majority of patients who have reconstructive surgery and shoulder surgery come along at 12 months and, and go, well, yeah, you know, I'm good now. And, and to be fair, a lot of them come along well before that and say, look, I'm, you know, I'm a lot better than I was before. Um, uh, I, you know, because if they think back and, and think about how they were before surgery, they, they remember, you know, those sleepless nights. And, the and I think it's one of those things of taking an assessment of your pain or the all the daily living activities that you're really struggling with and remembering how difficult they were it's mm. easy to forget those things of of yes. pain and suffering prior to surgery and the rehab uh, i have sort of two different rehab strategies i suppose i think you've got to do three months of pretty hard work at the end of three months i, I think i have two groups of patients is there's the really motivated ones, the ones who were playing penance tennis who can't or, you know, uh, who want to go on. They want to know, what can I lift? What can I stretch? How can I do this? Can I get in the pool? When can I start, you know, playing golf? All that sort of stuff. Especially if your livelihood's at stake as well, there'd be people. Yes, so those people I spend more time sort of saying, hang on, back off. We're, <laughs> we can't do that yet. You can't climb ladders or whatever it is, you know. So, um, and that part of that is part of... I guess rehab and what we do is we steer people into a pathway. Some people need to be, uh, you know, pushed a little bit harder, not because they, you know, uh, wimpy. They just don't know what they're supposed to be doing, and there's this fear of tearing the tendon or re-tearing. And then other people are doing way more than we'd like them to do. And we're saying, look, just back back down a little bit. I had a, uh, had a lady today, six months post uh, surgery, going. I, I really want to start exercise. <laughs> So I have those patients who are extremely motivated at three month mark, but then I have another group of people where you know it's been it's been everything they think about for three months, and I say, look, it's going to get better over the next nine months. You've got an, probably another nine months. A lot of that will come with day to day activities. If you start hanging the clothes on the line, you start getting things out of a cupboard. Just just you've done the hard yards. You've got good movement. The rest of the movement's going to come. Just get on with your day to day living. And have the re, a bit of rehab trickling along in the background, you know. At night, you know, do try and find 15 minutes to do some stretches. And I'm a big fan of physios. I do encourage my patients to see physios. I think they do a great job. Um, but at the same time, some people who've spent their life in and out of gyms and, you know, pretty switched on, uh, those people can work off a, a program themselves, particularly if we've got a little, you know. So the physio input can be as little or as, as, as uh, much as, as you want. Uh, some people like, you know, some people like to go to personal trainer. They like to be made to do it, I suppose. Uh, but other people are well motivated and, and you, uh, the exercises are pretty self-explanatory and, and we can get by with, with pretty minimal rehab. And, and part of the motivation for me having my own rehab programs online is that I do treat a lot of country patients and mm. they don't have access to physio. They're the ones I'm always holding back. Because <laughs> they're doers, aren't they? Yeah, they want right. to just get out there yeah. and get Tough better. Tough as nails and, and make <laughs> the best patients. <laughs> true so then what are ways we can prevent rotator cuff injuries um we can't you know prevent getting older unfortunately um but what are some other ways we might be able to prevent these injuries happening you know later rather than sooner mm. that's a tough one because you know the, there's no absolute sort of foolproof way of saying you're not going to get get something down the track um i think uh, we do I, I guess flag people who are at risk so if you are getting tendonitis, impingement, bursitis in your uh, in, in your 30s or 40s, 
then maybe you need to think about how much overhead activity you're doing. Uh, if you are doing a whole lot of heavy stuff in the gym overhead and taking a lot of painkillers, taking a lot of panel, taking a lot of anti-inflammatories, that's your body saying, mm, this is probably not real good for me, okay? Um, you, you can do a rotator cuff stretch and strengthen program as a sort of long-term maintenance thing as well. So uh, the stretches are pretty much what a swimmer might do for a warm-up. You can, uh, you know, sort of basic set of shoulder stretches and some uh, rubber band or dumbbell exercises to keep those rotator cuff muscles strong. Um, There is an operation that we do for people who have tendon rubbing but not tendon tearing. And so that's a keyhole operation where we clean out the bursitis and we shave the bone, as I spoke to Mm. you about before, but we don't have to repair the tendon. So that's called an acromioplasty. Acromion is the bone, so acromioplasty is shaving some of the bone away. Uh, It's also called subacromial decompression or SAD, which is uh, we're we're cleaning, uh, we're just making more space underneath the bone, the subacromial space where you get this bursitis in response to the rubbing. So we're making more space and cleaning out this bursal tissue that might have become chronic and and, and is just hardened and thickened and not responding to stretches and strengthening and injections and stuff like that. So you can get this sort of chronic impingement and, and... does doing an operation, a lesser operation, so that's not a reconstructive operation. It's sore, but you can move it straight away and use it straight away. And so does does intervening surgically earlier in this process then change the course of future? And will it? Change the course it of history. Look, we like to think so, yes, and, and quite often it does. Uh, and is the recovery less? Absolutely, yes. Or the recovery is... It's still sore because you're shaving bone, but it's much less restrictive on your on your life and your work capacity because there's no nothing stitched together. There's nothing that's going to tear apart, and so we say, crack on as your pain permits. Okay, and we still get the physios to do this rotator cuff stretch and strengthen program. Um, most people have three months of pain, but it's not completely disabling pain, and they're certainly back at work a lot quicker. So. Where does that come into play? Well, it, again, you've got to have the same justifications. You've got to have pain that's that's not responding to all the other treatments. And if you've had that pain going on for at least three months and probably preferably four, five, six months and you've had some injections and some physio and strengthening and stuff and the scan says that you've got this bursitis and impingement uh, but no tendon tearing or just a bit of tendon fraying uh, and particularly if you've got bone prominence, if we can see on the x-ray or scan that there, there might be a mechanical process of, of rubbing, then uh, those patients do respond well to keyhole surgery. And so we do think that's an appropriate thing to do. Now, we are certainly in an age of what's called evidence-based medicine. Everything we do has to be supported by studies and proven. We're at the end of the road. We have to make a decision. Do we go down the path of surgery or not? It's not your it's not your first step. It's almost never your first step. Yeah. Well, that's not true. If you're a young person and you come in with a big rotator cuff tear from a shoulder dislocation, I am going to say to you, you need this fixed straight away. Yeah. Uh, and but, is there many people that come in with dislocations? Um, yeah, we're, again, we're a very active society and, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the, the most recent one I saw was a father-son camp where the the dad was on the um, the climbing net, you know, probably hasn't done it for 20 years. Oh, no. <laughs> fell, arm, arm got caught in the net, fell off, dislocated his shoulder, tore his tendons, you know. Oh, wow. Uh, so what are sort of the key 
key messages that we should think about when we're thinking about rotator cuff um, injuries and and we might be needing to consider surgery or what are our options? Um, I think uh, an understanding of that that timeline, that slow progression over time and a a recognition that uh, perhaps if you've had this bursitis, tendonitis sort of problem over an extended period of time and it is impacting upon your life, at least go and get an opinion from an orthopaedic surgeon uh, because I think think there's quite a few people out there who struggle with those symptoms um, and have maybe been told that, that, that there's nothing else that, that can be done or maybe that, that they just have to put up with it. And so ig- ignoring long-term shoulder problems or shoulder pain is is not sensible, at least. Uh, and as I said, a lot of, I have a lot of patients who are under observation and monitoring and we're just making sure that we don't miss the boat or miss something serious. So, so don't ig- ignore um, something that's impacted upon your day of life, at least uh, uh, get some definitive diagnosis about it and often that does mean an MRI scan the but I suppose at the other side of that I would definitely say rotator cuff tear does not equal surgery there and that uh, there's there has to be a justification in terms of pain and loss of function and uh, and that in a certain age group uh, and maybe age group's not the word maybe we talk about chronologic age and biologic age so you know I, I see 80-year-olds who are hiking in the Swiss Alps, and I see 60-year-olds who've had a triple bypass and are on every cardiac drug you can imagine. So we talk about their like maybe your chronologic age and, and what your expectations are and what you want to you know, expect to keep I doing. I think it's also simple things like lifting your grandchild or, you know, yes, people, or is, if you're a parent, you know, it must be terrible when you can't lift up your, your grandchild or give them yes. a cuddle or something, yes. you know, and I would imagine... There you go. You know, age is not the factor. It's a factor mm. of what you still want to do with your life and be able to do, isn't it? And, and have to do. So I've yeah. had, had quite a few grandparents who've said, oh, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I babysit uh, so that the parents can work on Tuesdays and mm-hmm. Fridays and um, possibly can't do it at the moment because it's got to be planned around the extended family as well, you know. So our grandparents are a critical uh, mm. role in, in a lot of families. And I guess if my, my third uh, third bit of advice was if you're uh, embarking on surgery, um, uh, have a have a bit of an understanding about what rehab's involved. Don't underestimate the magnitude of the procedure uh, in terms of not so much in terms of risk. It's actually quite a straightforward procedure. We're not near any major nerves or arteries. Uh, or uh, structures that can be damaged. It's it's a technically straightforward procedure, but 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 the magnitude of the rehab and and a really serious commitment to to doing the rehab, and perhaps as part of that, uh, I think I would see, you know, one hundred people who do too little for fear of tearing it, for every one that does too much. You know, generally speaking, we're giving you a set of exercises that are very safe do them to the utmost of your ability, you know. And you're likely to have success. 12 months later, be your, Hang in there. Be your next success Hang story. Hang in there, I suppose. That's a phrase I use a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much for your time. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you, Danae. And great uh, chance to talk about maybe some of the finer points of rotator cuff repair that don't necessarily come across in the, uh, in the uh, 
uh, on, in the, your, on the internet, maybe. Fantastic. And hopefully um, they can definitely listen to this podcast, get some really good quality information and have a look at your website and have a look at the rehab program. Sounds really um, interesting and of value to people. Thank you very much. A big thank you to Dr. Colvin for sharing his knowledge with us today on MediTalk. And to learn more about Dr. Colvin and St. John of God Hospital Subiaco, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of MediTalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.